This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. What are the challenges for a person seeking asylum on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity? Does the Australian legal system ensure protection for people seeking asylum on these grounds? And how does it compare with other refugee receiving countries? These were some of the issues explored in this Caldwell Centre panel event, Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity and Asylum, Australian and Global Perspectives. The panel speakers were Sarah Dale, Centre Director and Principal Solicitor at the Refugee Advice and Casework Service, Minu Islami, an Iranian activist in exile who advocates for lesbian and transgender rights, particularly those of people seeking asylum, and Dr Ruvi Ziegler, Associate Professor in International Refugee Law at the University of Reading. The panel was moderated by Ghassan Kassissier, Legal Director at Equality Australia. Tonight we're going to explore some Australian and global perspectives on refugee protection based on membership to a particular social group defined by sexual orientation, gender identity and sex diversity. Um, In this discussion, Language is always fraught, uh, especially when we are talking about cross-cultural experiences of sexuality and sex gender diversity. So we'll be using language like LGBTI or SOGI, sexual orientation, gender identity and intersex, to describe um, a uh, cross-culturally diverse group of people um, whose uh, sexuality and gender identity or sex characteristics um, them in harm's way so please um, take that language generously Um, and our panel includes experts in both practice and in life but before I open to them um, it's worth setting the scene for our discussion and since the 1990s Australia along with several other countries have recognized claims for refugee protection based on sexual orientation And since the 2000s, claims also based on gender identity and expression have also been made. Um, To my knowledge, um, there are no published Australian claims based on variations to sex characteristics um, or intersex status. But um, decisions in Australia principally made by delegates um, at the Department uh, of Immigration and then can be appealed on merits, on their merits to the Australian um, uh, Administrative Appeals Tribunal. We don't have readily available databases of decisions at the delegate level, but based on a sample of 426 published Australian tribunal decisions on the basis of sexual orientation and or gender identity between June 2007 and 2018, the success rate before the tribunal by decision is around 38%. So over 45 countries of origin are represented in these Australian decisions, with Lebanon, India and Malaysia being the most common countries of origin, though not necessarily the highest rates of acceptance from those countries. The acceptance of claims varies also a great deal and depends on a number of issues. Before the tribunal, the majority of claims are still made by gay men. Uh, The number of published trans and gender diverse decisions are small, in that sample around 13, but they have a fairly high success rate of around 62%. 
while the, na the number of bisexual claims are similarly small, around 23 in that sample, and they have a very low success rate of around 18%. And gays and lesbians are somewhere in the middle with around 40% of the success rate. So this tells us something perhaps quite interesting about the way in which claims are determined um, that impacts on these outcomes. Um, and in, in my research, um, assisted um, particularly by pro bono work with um, Gilbert and Tobin, there's been a number of issues that have come to the fore. Um, I should acknowledge, though, that the caseload before the AAT is enormous and they have a very short time frame to come to these decisions, which can impact very much on a person's um, you know, future life in terms of looking at uh, whether they would face a, um, a real chance of persecution if returned to the country of origin. So they have a job to do that is a difficult one. Um, but nonetheless, we see still um, stereotypes based on uh, stereotypical no notions of a gay lifestyle um, playing out in how these decisions are made. So the tribunal often asks questions which suggest they expect applicants, particularly upon arriving in Australia, to actively engage in the gay community, to visit gay bars and clubs, to seek out homosexual relationships, and to live a generally extroverted and open life. Um, and these narratives are used to identify um, whether the claim is credible, um, and there's also in, in these narratives sometimes a focus on sex, sex acts rather than uh, the experience, the life experience of these applicants. And we also see some confusion regarding intersectionality or multiple identities that people may have, such as a religious identity alongside a sexual identity. Um, and the stereotypical um, notions of a gay lifestyle can have the propensity to dull the tribunal's mind to sexual diversity, especially as it's experienced um, across the world. Uh, and perhaps reasons why uh, an individual may not simply live a life of sex, partying and pride parades um, in understanding whether or not the applicant is who they say they are as a sexual minority. There's also, from the emerging cases around gender identity, clearly a relatively low level of understanding regarding trans identity and issues. And often a conflation between sexual orientation, which is the gender a person is attracted to, with gender identity, the gender a person identifies with, and sometimes with shocking results. So, the success rates of trans claims may well be from a lack of understanding and a great deal of luck rather than necessarily a deep appreciation of uh, particular human rights abuses facing trans and gender diverse applicants. Another uh, important theme is the safety of the process matters a great deal to the success of applicants. And an interesting stat that, um, from that sample of research is that applicants who were willing and are able to have a corroborating witness appear or support their claim are three times more likely to succeed in their claim. So corroboration is key to credibility. Now, of course, when we're thinking about um, sexual orientation and people who may not feel safe in disclosing their sexuality to other people, um, clearly there's an issue there for perhaps the most vulnerable 
are not able to establish their claims because they can't rely on other people like family members to come forward and support them. And in Australia and internationally, we're still very much influenced by this discretion reasoning or the notion that sexual minorities should cooperate in their own protection by remaining discreet about their sexuality. So the Australian High Court threw out that line of reasoning in 2003, but I think the shadow of it remains. Now we see the notion of discretion as a double-edged sword. So too gay and your claim is seen as staged. Not gay enough and you're unlikely to attract harm. So we see reasoning that suggests people are freely chosen to live a private homosexual lifestyle or remain married to heterosexual partners. Um, and the narrative of the perfect gay is one that is closeted at home, but out of fear, um, but out free and gay once in Australia. So to now, um, that having set the scene, I'd like to uh, introduce the panel, um, and Sarah in particular, um, if we could start with you, what are, in your, in your mind, the key challenges um, for applicants in seeking protection? Yeah. Thanks, and um, thanks so much everyone for being here tonight. Um, I too would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to Elders past, present, emerging, and indeed any Indigenous people that might be here today. I would also like to acknowledge that I'm very lucky to have been born in Australia and to be in a place where I don't have fear. Um, and I am, would like to acknowledge the many people that have come to Australia that have been displaced and that have taken the brave step to find the safety that I am blessed with. Uh, in terms of the challenges, I think something that was really stark for me in your introduction today was indeed that we don't really know the numbers. Um, certainly my experience as a lawyer that assists people with protection applications, I know that many of my clients that have identified as LGBTI get grants. I know that many of them are indeed protected under the current legal system here in Australia. Uh, is the process horrific for some of them? Absolutely. Are they asked intrusive questions? Definitely. Is there bias at those interviews? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I was sitting here listening to those numbers and I was going through names of people that I've worked with and I couldn't come up with one that had been refused in recent history for me. Um, that said, some have had to go to the tribunal and we've been successful there. But I think the sense that we don't really know what happens at that department stage is one that we really need more visibility about. And I think that's a challenge uh, in that we, we don't see, we don't hear, we don't know what's happening at that department stage. Decision records aren't published. Indeed, to get a decision record is incredibly onerous. We're waiting six months with freedom of information applications to get a decision record for a person. The department only give you a decision record if you're refused. So it's really tricky, I guess, to get across the nuances of this process. Uh, I guess something that I wanted to reflect on is I think we have come uh, a step in the right direction, particularly given we now have in our legislation that uh, you can no longer expect a person to modify their behaviour if it is a feature that is so inherent to them. An example I give my clients is if you're being persecuted because you drive a red truck, but you would be safe driving a green truck, then the government can expect you to start driving a green truck in your home country. 
However, if it's something that you cannot change, if it's something that is a political opinion or a sexuality or something that is inherent to you, um, the government in their assessment process can no longer expect you to change that, to hide that. Uh, and I guess for me, having seen the law prior to that introduction, uh, for me that is a step in the right direction. Um, but certainly I think the big challenge is exactly what you've heard, which is like, what is the ultimate gay? Um, in that, you know, they, they, the questions are like, so what did you do in February, March this year? <laughs> or, you know, what are your favourite spots in Sydney? And it's, you know, hoping for the ticker box answer. You know, Oxford Street, Mardi Gras, so that it's easy for a decision maker to make that assessment. One of the things that I constantly say to my clients uh, who disclose to me that they have this identity is that I'm really sorry. You're going to get asked heaps of questions that I would not get asked. If I go to the department and I say, I'm married and this is my husband, the question is not, are you straight? The question is, do I believe you're married? And that is not the experience of people that identify as LGBTIQ. It's not only do you have to demonstrate your relationship might be real or the practices you engaged with are genuine, you also have to prove your identity, which does not happen to um, heterosexual people. Mm. Thanks, Sarah. Um, Minya, if I could bring you in, do you um, have further reflections on what you think the key challenges are for applicants? Yeah. First, thank you for having me and special thanks to uh, Francis for, for the invite. Uh, so to, for uh, the key challenges, I think uh, as an applicant, first you, might, uh, you may go through the uh, items, uh, uh, go through the uh, websites of the uh, Home Affairs uh, for uh, lodging your application. Uh, you might see uh, five uh, well-founded uh, fears of persecution, uh, including race, religion, nationality, political issues, and membership of a, a particular social group. Uh, they may, uh, you might think uh, you uh, LGBTIQ people might, may fall into this group, this uh, particular uh, social group. But uh, I want to say it's very vague and unclear. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to say uh, how serious or intense one uh, issue should be to be mentioned directly and clearly uh, between these items. Uh, and it's not just about a term, it's not just about the word of uh, people involved with SOGI issues. Mm -hmm and sexual orientation, gender identity, or uh, sex characteristics. It's about creating of a safe and uh, welcoming uh, atmosphere, environment for them to apply. First, you just go to the website and see, where am I? Mm -hmm. uh, do I uh, am I a part of this particular group that uh, is saying here? Uh, why why it shouldn't be mentioned exactly there? The SAP. I they um, policymakers might uh, may uh, argue that uh, this uh, is not worth mentioning. But I want to say, uh, in terms of the population, uh, I, I uh, it's uh, it has been proved that the five to seven percent of any society, any community of uh, 
of any country belong to LGBTIQ uh, community. And uh, even in some resources, it's 10%. That's a huge number of people. Mm. And, uh, and uh, they may say, uh, policymakers uh, may say, uh, the persecution for them is not so clear. But it's exactly mentioned in their laws of different countries. Mm. Uh, we have, uh, in some countries, we have up to 20 years imprisonment for, uh, for uh, same-sex uh, relations. Uh, in uh, 12 countries, death penalty has been seen for them, and in just six, in six, uh, is has been implemented for uh, same-sex relationship. And uh, in terms of gender identity, is uh, we have a lot of uh, cruel sentences for them, not, like imprisonment, lashing, and everything like that. Mm. Uh, and uh, in some countries, they are uh, they have to get sterilization for this, uh, for uh, their illegal gender recognition. Uh, I want to just say it's very serious. It's very intense. You, it has to be mentioned there. And uh, you think uh, you uh, as a policymaker, you might think, uh, okay, they will. Uh, uh, apply for this and they just launch their uh, uh, application and see uh, what will happen. But uh, I want to say they are bringing a lot of stigma in their minds mm. to, the, uh, to a free uh, country like Australia. It's not very easy for them to apply. I, uh, I know, for example, a gay man from uh, Saudi Arabia that uh, he doesn't even have uh, this uh, uh, confidence to uh, come out to his uh, close friends rather than just uh, applying for this. And we have to say they put uh, themselves in danger. Uh, if, even if they, uh, there is no danger for them, it's uh, very hard to come out for, uh, for them. And, uh, with uh, clearing everything, like uh, for example, in the website that mm -hmm. uh, people in, uh, engage with, so the issue that can uh, uh, we can uh, make it safe and a friendly environment for them to just come there and apply for this, uh, mm -hmm. and it's just it's the matter of their lives, and we have to uh, take that very serious. So it's, it's really interesting you say that a simple website that just yes. says it's safe to apply mm -hmm. could be very important because we know that when decisions are made where someone is delayed telling mm -hmm. the uh, interpreter or their lawyer or their ultimate the decision maker about the claim that they're making, um, then they're not believed because of the delay. Mm -hmm. Inconsistencies or why didn't you tell us when you first... So it's... Um, it's such a simple, yeah. such a simple mm. thing, but it actually is significant to yeah, someone it, looking for. It has a meaning. Safety. It has a message right. in that. Ruby, can I can I bring you in, especially from sort of a global mm. um, perspective and the global protection regime? Um, how well do you think it um, it responds to the different needs and protection uh, protection needs of LGBTI people? Yeah. So thanks very much, and thanks everyone for being here. Thanks for the invitation. I, some of the things I want to say very much link to some of the points that Mina's just uh, 
it just made. Um, I think that the first potentially very blunt point to make is that there is no global protection regime in the sense that there is no global consensus. In fact, one might say very clearly, this is one category, perhaps somewhat different than some of the other categories within refugee law, where there will be a debate over the, um, the extent to which race or nationality or religion extends, over whether a particular practice of a particular state amounts to persecution within the meaning of the 51 Convention. But there isn't, or, or there, it would be an outlier position for a country to say, we believe that um, sending somebody to jail because they are of a certain race is justified. Um, the issues around um, uh, LGBTIQ is, of course, very different. We're still in a position in the world in 2019 where um, a large minority uh, of states and possibly a majority of people live in countries that still criminalize certain forms of conduct. And if we're thinking about the spectrum of countries, we, we have a spectrum in the world from countries like this one, which fairly recently, one should say, mm -hmm. uh, has um, uh, recognized uh, legalized marriage and, and other associated rights through countries that protect from discrimination but don't fully accord uh, um, protections in all fields of private and public lives to countries where there is no criminalization but there's no protection from discrimination through countries where uh, there is criminalization but it's not enforced and we may come later to, to how refugee hosting states react to that through countries where it is enforced and can range anywhere from a year or two to um, to that to the death penalty right so uh, and it's also not a coincidence that we look at later documents after the 51 convention um, the organization of african unities convention uh, has expanded the refugee definition in various ways but not in this field and uh, understandably, given actually the majority of countries in Africa still criminalize homosexuality. And similarly, even the Cartagena Declaration in Latin America hasn't done so. So, so this raises several issues. One is uh, that the five top refugee producing countries are all countries where um, sexual behavior is criminalized. So Syria, Afghanistan, Myanmar, Somalia, and South Sudan all fall into that category. But perhaps equally importantly, three of the five refugee, uh, largest refugee hosting countries are also countries where those practices are criminalized. So this is Pakistan, Sudan, and Uganda. And Turkey, also in the top five, is a country where it's not criminalized, but there are no protections from discrimination. So it's only Germany within the top five that is a country that is protected. And this links to Tamino's point as well, because this has an effect on the behaviors of refugee hosting countries, even if they host refugees more generally. But it also has an effect on the ability of somebody who escapes persecution to feel comfortable within their own refugee diaspora community in the country of asylum. Because that refugee community may actually not be welcoming uh, of their own mm. practices. And it fundamentally raises the question of how states react to an asylum claim um, which is somewhere along the spectrum different to where the state the asylum state sits right so if you've got an asylum state where there is recognition of all rights where is the border where is the line that is drawn to suggest that somebody is um, is um, a refugee claimant do you set the bar at the same level of protection that exists in the state or do you set it 
further away. This is this is where issues around criminalization arise, and these these are often countries that are neighboring countries. So I give an example. I've, I've now spent the last few months looking at the asylum system in South Africa. Uh, and South Africa is a fascinating example because it's a country that used to have criminalization until the end of apartheid, uh, but actually very soon thereafter in the Refugees Act of 1998 included quite unusually, even for 2019, a definition, a change to the definition of a refugee to include so to define social group to include amongst other a group of persons of particular gender sexual orientation disability class or caste this is 1998 this is very rare now consider the fact that many of the people who come to south africa come from zimbabwe a neighboring state where um homosexuality is criminalized with a penalty of up to 14 years in prison so how do you react to that so, so lots of uh, um, challenging questions, I think. Uh, and I want to pick up on that idea that um, the individual experience matters. And we do see criminalization as a proxy for whether or not there's persecution. And so you see it actually, the success rates, if you actually compare countries by country by country, whether it's illegal or not, you see the success rate kind of, yes, more decisions like Bangladesh was examples the highest acceptance rates of the, the, the surveys uh, of the sample that I saw while, you know, India moved towards um, decriminalizing and you see a lower success rate. But can I bring you back in, um, Sarah, because one of the things you said that um, you thought things had gotten better. Yeah. Um, and I wonder... I mean, the refugee issue right now is pretty bad. So, <laughs> to, um, you know, better in relative terms. Yeah. So can you give us maybe some, particularly from, from your work of, um, do you still see the stereotypes coming forward? Are there, what, what sort of improvements are you, are yeah. you seeing? Or what, what's bad, what's good? I guess if I compare when in 2012, going to department interviews to going to department interviews in 2019, I think that there is more uh, sensitivity. Um, you know, you don't need to provide a list of boyfriends or girlfriends or, mm. you know, there's not um, the same sense of needing to tick a box. That said, those stereotypical questions are still asked in, mm. in many cases. And I mean, Lebanon is a, a really great example because, you know, often the response is, well, you know, Beirut is like the capital. <laughs> um, <laughs> the gay the capital Middle of the Middle East. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so then there is that additional onus on a person to demonstrate family or community issues. Uh, and I think there's, we're now at this point of, uh, people being questioned, you know, why haven't you disclosed to this person, this person? If I asked your mum, what would they know? If your brother knew, what would they know? Um, what would they say? What would they do? And so there is this additional element of people having to explain, as I said before, it's not just your identity, it's about your relationships with others as well. I also think that it's a problem with the test and I don't have a solution to that because the test is you would need someone to identify that you identified in a certain way in order to render that harm, right? right? Yeah. Wow. So if nobody in this room knew that I was gay or lesbian, why would someone hurt me? They'd have to know that you are that or that you identify in such a way in order to warrant the harm. So I think that's where there's mm. this real... I don't have the solution. But interesting, because there's yeah. some cases where I've seen where... Um, 
a woman said that she was a lesbian, but she was in an arranged marriage in India yeah. and was told, well, if you went back to India, no one would know you're a lesbian, but she's in an arranged marriage. So there's no question about whether or not that in and of itself is a form of persecution. Yeah. Um, you've been married in a, in, a, in a relationship that doesn't accord with your own mm. identity. Yes. Um, but can I can I bring you back in, Minu? In particular, this this issue of um, the decision maker, the, whether it's the delegate or the tribunal, being able to understand and listen to the story that's before them and un, and empathise. Um, what's your perspective on the, the in particular intersectionality or the complexity of identity that mm-hmm. the, the tribunal or the delegate? we'll see. Do you feel that they are able to comprehend and understand? Uh, I've seen uh, some cases, uh, for example, for uh, even uh, dealing with uh, a UN commissioner in, uh, in Turkey, that's how they, step, they say, if you look, uh, for example, as a lesbian, if you look very feminine, they don't take you very serious. Um, or if you, uh, as a gay person, if you look very manly, go to the <laughs> to the end of the line. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, every, I think uh, we are going to the way that uh, our decisions uh, aren't making based on the the people look. Uh, at least that's the thing I have uh, felt uh, in Australia. And but uh, that's uh, that's the challenge is uh, that uh, they uh, think uh, the only uh, resource they have is that to very verify this uh, people's claim, and uh, uh, I th- think it's uh, um, I don't have any particular solution for that. Just uh, mm-hmm. to be honest, uh, but uh, I know that's uh, very challenging is, uh, for uh, to prove that uh, your your uh, sexual orientation is like this, and even it's worse for uh, bisexuals is, uh, because they say, okay, you have this freedom, mm. you can you can be uh, sometimes you can be straight and uh, and save your life. Right. Uh, Go under the radar. Yeah, by, by but hiding uh, part of you. <laughs> yeah. But for transgenders, it's uh, it's uh, easier because uh, this. Uh, their gender identity is very like obvious in their um, in their lives, uh, and for um, intersex is even much easier. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, Ruby, how about um, looking sort of internationally? Yeah. Do you see the same? Uh, well, do you see good or bad practice overseas when you compare? Um, maybe not compare to Australia, but in terms of yeah. things we can learn or. Yeah. Well, so 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 to tie to to two of the themes that we've we've uh, we've been looking at one one issues around um, discretion and one one on, on criminalization. Uh, so there was a really interesting, quite seminal case a few years ago in the European Court of Justice that in a way was a good and a bad case, mm. uh, all the same because it was uh, you you might argue a very good case on discretion uh, and a rather disappointing case on um, criminalization. Uh, so, so this was a case involving um, three asylum applicants uh, applied in the Netherlands from Sierra Leone, Uganda, and Senegal, respectively. And in all of these countries, there is uh, criminalization of homosexuality, and it's punishable by imprisonment. 
but there was no direct evidence in, in any of these countries that the laws are uh, enforced. I mean, mm. since then, actually, Uganda's um, has become worse. Uh, actually, there have, there have been cases. So I, I suspect now that case uh, might have been heard somewhat differently. But, but the interesting thing about that case is that um, so the court was set with, with several questions. The first uh, being whether actually the category under the, uh, under the Refugee Convention as applied in EU law under the EU Qualification Directive, uh, whether um, homosexual orientation, as it was referred to in the question, uh, forms a particular social group. And the interesting thing that the court said was, well, the fact that there is criminal law targeting this particular group supports the finding that they must be regarded as forming a particular social group. So they're actually using the fact that there was criminalization to support the identity of the group and then to say that a person's sexual orientation is a characteristic that's fundamental to their identity and they shouldn't be expected to renounce it. So on that level, they were a group. Uh, but then when it came to, well, and so how do we react to the fact that those countries that people come from are countries where um, there is criminalization. How does that affect people's behaviors? And how does that affect our assessment of whether they are, um, uh, they are by definition refugees as escaping such countries? So on the latter question, on criminalization per se, uh, the court says that um, not all violations of fundamental rights that are suffered by quote unquote a homosexual asylum seeker will necessarily reach the desired level of seriousness. So the fact that there is the mere existence of legislation criminalizing homosexual acts cannot be regarded as an act affecting the applicant in a manner so significant that it reaches that level of seriousness that is necessary for finding that it constitutes persecution. And the contrast here is, is remarkable because about 25, I think almost 30 years before, there was a case in the European Court of Human Rights, another European supranational court, where there was a law in Northern Ireland, not in the rest of the UK, but in Northern Ireland, that still criminalized homosexuality and was not enforced. And in that case, the court says that there is, that it recognized fear, suffering, and distress that it caused by the very existence mm. of that law that can create, of course, blackmail and, mm. and can force people into hiding. Um, so it's an example of what I said earlier of not applying in a way the same standards that would now apply. And frankly, that has been applied in the European sphere in 1983 to a case applying to asylum from 2013. But then to contrast it, so that this is in a way, uh, this was a rather disappointing element of the judgment. Of the judgment. But the, you might say the positive element of the judgment was the point about discretion. Because um, a few years before uh, the, the ECJ judgment, there was a case in, uh, in the UK uh, Supreme Court, AJ, HJ and HT, uh, Iran, Cameroon, respectively, where, generally speaking, the notion that people have to conceal their identity in order to avoid persecution was rejected, but with a caveat. And the caveat the Lord, the late Lord Roger uh, put into that judgment was to say, uh, well, if, uh, if the reason you are going to conceal it is because of social pressures and because you don't want your family to not like you, etc., and not materially because of persecution, then that's not persecution. Uh, whereas the European Court of Justice says, essentially, you shouldn't be expected to modify your behavior, but also the test should be whether 
it is reasonable to expect a person to modify their behavior. Not whether, not trying to assess what will prompt them uh, from a motivational perspective to change their behavior. Is it reasonable to expect somebody to behave differently than to link it back to a point that Sarah made? To, to expect them to act in a, to hide part of their identity, which you wouldn't expect a, uh, a straight person to do. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that, that has been helpful in a way in steering, and one might say it has also steered the UK more into a reasonableness test rather than a subjective test. Right. We, we've seen our High Court say similar things around criminalization as being a, uh, you know, an environment in which blackmail and other persecution can occur. Mm -hmm. The fact that you can't seek protection from the state when you are being um, criminalised by the state. But it's, it's the, uh, the case of, um, that you refer to, the brightly coloured cocktails case. Yes, of course. So, um, yeah, the Kylie, know, the yes. Kylie Minogue concert. So Lord, yeah. Lord Rogers' yeah. view that, uh, well, uh, gay people should be able to attend Kylie concerts and drink brightly coloured cocktails in the same way that a heterosexual male can go to rugby. rugby yeah. So exactly. in <laughs> some, yeah. some yeah. weird world, yeah. you know, um, in allowing people to express themselves, we're also reinforcing mm. um, the same kinds of issues around stereotypes. Um, Minu, can I bring you back in, in terms of looking to the future? Um, and these kinds of decisions, you know, we're talking about the experience of people and we're talking about people's real life here, yeah, the people appearing before a tribunal or, or a decision maker at the department level, what can we, if we are practitioners or interpreters or agents, do to make sure or to assist applicants to make it a better experience in, um, in putting forward a claim? Yeah, as I uh, mentioned, this, uh, this whole about uh, creating a like, safe uh, environment for, the, uh, for uh, LGBTI applicants uh, by the just mentioning just that or uh, uh, make everything easy for the for the process of their uh, application. Just have for uh, for example, it can uh, start with uh, uh, having some uh, uh, interpreters who are ex expert who are uh, familiar with uh, the whole issue. I know some cases they they were uncomfortable with uh, mm. with the uh, with the interpreter uh, like. Uh, the person was uh, very old and they couldn't uh, understand uh, what's the issue and, this, and they wanted, mm. if they want to, wanted to translate to English they said they didn't know how to say and and uh, that person still have stigma in their mind because right. because coming from the same country and society mm. and uh, I think it's uh, if you just see all the process for the, for the uh, LGBTI applicants uh, step by step and make everything easier for them uh, that could be very helpful for uh, for these uh, for the community and uh, the other thing is uh, if we uh, put uh, policymakers in Australia in touch with uh, uh, several organizations we have in particular countries uh, uh, which are more familiar with the issues uh, uh, happening in this uh, in the country, uh, that could uh, make uh, their decisions even faster and easier. 
for example, uh, we have we have many uh, organizations in in countries uh, if, uh, that uh, where the uh, same sex relations are criminalized, or if this uh, is uh, their uh, if their activism is banned, we have some uh, organization in exile, mm. like my my own organization, mm. uh, and uh, if they. Uh, we have a more connection between them, mm -hmm. between the policymakers in Australia, and then we can uh, we can have a uh, we can have more clear images of what's happening in mm -hmm. that country, and uh, uh, that could be very helpful, I guess. Uh, that is a huge challenge because mm -hmm. country information is yeah, and maybe Sarah, you want to come in? I mean, country <laughs> information is central to testing the credibility and and also the risk of persecution. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have this constant tension about country information. You know, DFAT uh, is heavily relied upon um, in terms of steering the department's country information. Well, you know, DFAT suggests that parts of Afghanistan are safe, despite yeah. the fact people on the ground are constantly reporting it is not. Uh, so that additional country information and reports from groups that are talking to people on the ground, like yours, Minu, is what I, as a practitioner, rely upon all the time, often to discredit the government's country information or to bolster um, the information where it is supportive. But it's just so, so critical that those on-the-ground reports are there because otherwise we rely on the UK Home Office, we rely on DFAT, who are you know, using reports from people that visited someone six months ago that spoke to someone on the streets of Kabul. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, it's just not acceptable um, in this day and age, in this 2019, about to hit 2020, our country information should, one, be more up to date, um, and two, should be more accessible, and three, should be more relevant from the people on the ground that experience that. Because indeed, that's how we build credibility, is that we say, well, you know, this person is telling you that was their experience, well, here's all the information to suggest that many others are having that experience. And where those reports aren't from the people experiencing it, you know, how are we going to get the story out there? Mm. Before I open it up, yeah. do you also want to reflect on the future in terms of, you know, strategies that we can adopt to yeah. improve the situation? Yeah, so, so I wanted to kind of name check here and um, kind of give credit to somebody I had the pleasure of actually examining last year at a PhD with somebody who's, a, who's been a, a practicing barrister for the last three decades, I believe, in, in the UK, and uh, and has developed a model, um, so his name is S. Chalvin, uh, developed a model uh, that has been partly adopted by, uh, by IASU, so the European Asylum Support Office, by UNHCR, and, and by the International Association of Refugee Lawyers and Judges, uh, called the DISH model. So it's a model that tries to, to move away from an expectation of certain behaviors or an assessment of, of how people are or are not supposed to um, um, to perform in certain circumstances and, and focus on uh, what, what he defines as different stigma, shame and harm. So the idea is that the first, the starting point, in a way he suggests that um, ECJ judgments that I mentioned, the X, Y and Z judgment, um, the, the court in a way implicitly recognized the idea that the first point of entry is, is the notion of difference. Because why is it that a law is targeting specifically this group 
exploit sexual behavior and all others. It's because they're deemed to be different and they're deemed to be different in a way society then is reprimanding. So, so the first, in a way, entry is that when a person feels that they are different in a society, that difference is a challenge. Uh, that difference is not celebrated, that difference is a challenge for them because it then generates a stigma that they feel culturally or religiously or socially for family members or for people around them. Uh, it leads themselves to a degree of shame mm -hmm. um, because of that impact of the stigma on the individual. And then it, of course, could cause harm. So it can cause mental health harm, but it can cause um, the harm from the existence of legislation that criminalizes what you want to do and feel um, a propensity to do, uh, or indeed actual uh, discrimination or persecution. And so uh, what Chauvin suggested that using, using this model to try to understand the experience of the person seeking asylum, of the queer refugee, um, is, uh, is a way to move away in a sense from, a, from an attempt to try and pigeonhole people into mm -hmm. certain modes of behavior and focus on the story of the narrative of each individual. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, um, as I said, this has been adopted to some extent by some international organizations uh, in their guidance that is given to, to those who conduct on their behalf um, status determination countries uh, and, and training. Um, and, and, and the Home Office in the UK to some extent has also adopted it. And so that may be a positive way of, uh, of moving forward.